You're listening to the Winnebus.net Podcast Network. Winnebus.net has been your one-stop shop for all things geek for years. But there's a side to them many of you have never heard. The subscription side. Subscribe and listen to great podcasts like The Breakfast Pub, The Original Gentleman, and the Watch a Movie With Us series. Head on over to oneofus.net and don't forget your towel. Episode of Digital Noise for your ear holes coming to you right now. My ear holes are kind of dirty right now. Are they? Do you need a Q-tip? Uh, you're not supposed to use those, but I do anyway because it feels good. I know. Is there anybody who does follow the instructions and just go on the outside of the ear? You have that. We all live that fine, dangerous line where you're just putting it in the canal, yeah, and man. you're like, you know, a millimeter too much, and you'll go, "Ow, did I permanently damage myself?" You know what? Uh, I'm. I, I wonder how many times I've ruptured my eardrum. Um, yeah, I wonder that too, actually, often considering often I have ringing in my ears for no particular reason, but I suspect that had more to do with my twenties when I used to hang out right in front of the PAs at big rock shows. I still do it now, but that's because it's the only way I can go to sleep. (laughs) Well, you you can't hear it otherwise. (laughs) Uh, yeah. Welcome to digital noise. We have a lot of stuff to talk about this week. A lot of movies, uh, only one TV show this week, Yep, but one that for once, this this is a week that it's a show that Joe watches. So I didn't have have to go like please watch this tv show he's like no no i'll watch this one <laughs> you're happy to yeah it was it was good times you know i mean i really love veep it's just the best show ever on <laughs> Wait, television no, it wasn't veep oh well i watched veep oh well shit well we'll save that for another show okay. uh anyway please become a subscriber this is how this site stays running honestly more than anything else becoming a subscriber at any level two dollar five dollar ten dollar or twenty five dollars for you true believers out there excelsior <laughs> <laughs> uh is is how we keep going i can't tell you how important it is and honestly if you were to set up your account for a reoccurring two or five dollars a month would you even notice but we notice we notice in a big way yeah it's, it's like taking pennies come on guys right and for all this entertainment and more uh subscriber only uh, stuff on the way all the time as well you'll see if you're on the actual page itself you'll see a bunch of pictures of all the movies that we are talking about this week if you click on one of those it brings you to an amazon.com page where you can buy that movie and if you do that we get a hefty little kickback from amazon but even better you can click on it start at that page and go you know what i don't feel like buying this movie but i do need to buy something else on amazon Mm -hmm. you got one of those does it work with those button things what button things like when you're at a tide and you just press the amazon little tide button they send you does it work with that i I don't even know what that is (laughs) is that like the shoes where you can order pizza through pressing the button yeah it is actually (laughs) (laughs) but no matter what you know you're like you're there like oh shit i thought i was gonna buy donnie darko but i realized i already have it so instead i'm gonna buy myself a drone as long as you start through our links, if you buy it from there, we will get a kickback from whatever you buy. So do that. Do yeah, all it doesn't Amazon. cost you anything more. It's it the same price. It doesn't cost you anything. It just sends us money, and that's helpful. Well, without any further ado, let's get on to the review. Reviews. 
And we're going to start off with one of the big movies that came out this month on Blu-ray and DVD, and that is Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the ninth, ninth, right? Harry I Potter film? No, this is my first. Pretty sure. It's like there's seven books, eight movies beforehand, because mm-hmm. they, they had to split them up, because that's what you do now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Cash grab. And, uh, and then now this prequel series, which I know that word makes everyone kind of nervous, <laughs> but at least this first movie doesn't, you know, I mean, even though it does take place before everything, it, it never has that feel like they're constantly oh, and look, here's baby Voldemort or anything like that. You know, it's it's not really going there, even though the next one is like, oh, we're going to have now a 30-something D- Dumbledore. You're like, okay. Yeah, don't you hate those when stand- standalones do that? <laughs> this does feel kind of like a standalone, but at the same time, it's ex- it's more serves to explore the universe as it was at this period of time, mm-hmm. which is pretty darn different than what it was like during the Harry Potter things. There's a definite, r- different relationship between uh, m- magicians and nomadges, if you will, oh, or muggles. Uh, dirty, dirty nomad. <laughs> and it follows a character uh, uh, named Newt Scalamander, played by Eddie Redmayne, that, that originally J.K. Rowling wrote, I, I think, for charity, I think, I think. She wrote a book called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find mm-hmm. Them that was like a real short thing, but I'm pretty sure it was a, like a charity deal. And when uh, Warner Brothers went to her and said, those movies were just an excuse to print money and got any other ideas? <laughs> We'd like more money, please. She was like, actually, I do. I'm going to expand on this Newt Scalamander character who's kind of a weird, nervous little guy who is obsessed with big monsters. He's kind of like, he's the guy who wrote the textbook for that Hagrid teaches with in the Well, movies. okay, like weird and skittish. Or Eddie Redmayne. Like, you have to ask that question. (laughs) Is it the character or is it Eddie Redmayne? Uh, Along the way, he meets up with Dan Fogler, who, shockingly, I thought was the best thing about this movie. Yes, he was. I mean, Fogler's always one of those, like, oh, I don't know how to feel about this. Sometimes he's the the downside of any given comedy. But here, him playing a a muggle who gets brought into their world and gets to be the guy filled with awe and wonder at all the cool shit he gets to see is... Played for laughs, but never so much that you feel like he's a bumbling idiot. Yeah, he wasn't a schlump. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's schlumpy looking, and you assume they're going to play him that way because he's so schlumpy looking. But he's actually kind of a romantic lead, strangely. Well, he's 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 oftentimes like the 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 voice of humanity. Yeah, that that avatar for the audience. Yeah, know, some as we're being introduced to this like much more detailed look at the world of magic in the Potterverse than any we've really seen in any of the other films. I, is, I'm guessing so. Have you not seen the no, other No, this films? was my first. Oh, wow, really? <laughs> yeah. So out of curiosity, what did you think, that being this being your first then? Uh, kind of incomplete. Mm-hmm. Like It felt like there should, like I really should have known a lot more. Luckily, my girlfriend decided to fill me in on everything to the point where I had to pause like 20 times throughout the movie. Fair enough. Um, I, I mean, it is something you don't have to have watched the Potter stuff, but even with that, like me knowing all that stuff back and forth, mm-hmm. I was like, this is clearly like the the preamble to a new story more mm-hmm. than anything. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I don't know if, if it's supposed to follow uh, the Scamander uh, specifically. I think I think he's supposed to be in all of them, but he's not always the main character. Okay. Um, I get the feeling in the next one, uh, Dumbledore is probably the main character. Okay. Now they've announced he's played by Jude Law. Oh, all right. Well, yeah, the relationship between him and another character in here that if you haven't watched it yet, I'm not going to say spoiler because it's technically more than one actor. The boys are <laughs> going to be yummy, let me tell you, folks. But I mean, I enjoyed the, the oddness of the characters that are in this thing. The one thing I had problems at all was Ezra Miller's, Miller's character, who was playing this kid who's kind of basically a, about to explode with magic. Oh, uh, that guy. Yeah. yeah. Bull cut. Yeah. But yeah, horrible, <laughs> worst haircut imaginable, who's hanging out with this religious cult who's very anti-magic. 
you know, like it all should be shut down, even though he's basically a magic bomb yeah, and he, doesn't he, know it. Does I'm not pick his audience Not well. crazy about that, especially considering that whole thing felt like a manufactured villain just so there was a villain in this chapter. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, Even though the real villain was kind of like, man, I mean, if he just did more villainy things, he could have been villainy villain. Well, yeah, he's definitely, the real villain is in here is definitely the introduction to who's going to be the villain as the series goes on more than the villain of this film. Right. He gets to do some villainy stuff. A little bit. A little bit. But even though we know, from what we know about that character, we know that... At, He's going to be kind of in the gray area for at least a while. Ooh. That he was like Dumbledore at the Hots form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I did also enjoy little things like Rod and Perlman plays a goblin gangster who owns a magical. Oh, movie. that's who was doing that. I kind of enjoyed that. That was kind of cute. Um, and Catherine Watterson playing a uh, former Auror who is wants to, you know be good at her job but nobody takes her seriously and she's because she messed up apparently at some point yeah like it wasn't real clear they're they're trying to uh she's trying to like bust newt scout and scalamander but nobody cares inside the, the <laughs> ministry of magic like just go away you're really irritating but overall i mean like i said this is a flawed first chapter of a new story but it's the effects are good uh there's a lot of funny humor there's a lot of new stuff added to the potterverse that i overall really liked uh, i think in general potter fans are going to be more pleased than not with this and you said as a non-potter fan it was acceptable yeah it was fine um Decent amount of bonus features, of course. Uh, there is a 15-minute before Harry Potter, A New Era of Magic Begins, which is just in a, a small making of an excuse to talk to some of the cast and, and uh, J.K. Rowling and the director, David Yates. Uh, there's, and then there's a whole bunch of little mini pieces on each one of the characters, on all the new creatures that we meet, which is kind of cool because the creatures are the best thing about this movie. Oh, yeah, Niffler. I, was, I kept asking. I was like, so did they steal that from Futurama? Is that, is that one of the creatures from well, Futurama? Well, I think Nibbler. Nibbler, yeah. Maybe they did. A whole bunch of stuff in all the design. A lot of deleted scenes, strangely, in here that are almost completely CG finished. So there was stuff that seems like they must have cut out at the last minute, you know? Which, you know, uh, I guess is awkward when you're halfway building it and you they're like, oh, hey, that thing you've been working for like two weeks on, we're not doing it anymore. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Don't worry. You'll still be on the credits. All right, let's move on to another big release that I did not actually get to see in the theater, uh, Patriot's Day. Partially because, i, I got to admit, the trailers for this were so obnoxiously gung-ho, uh-huh. pro-America, no matter what, terrorism is bad, so therefore America should be able to do whatever it wants, yeah, fight its thing. Which always, super saccharine. That whole, you know, let's not forget that, what was it, uh, Benjamin Franklin said those who would give up a little liberty, some liberty to fight tyranny, don't deserve something. I don't remember something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. In other words, you shouldn't give up major liberties of freedom in order to to fight fear. And you should hook up with French prostitutes whenever you can. He did <laughs> but, say that. But the, Well, he's not wrong. <laughs> uh, well, there are periods of time it probably wasn't so great. Well, no. Syphilis and all that. Yeah, it cost a living. Maybe if you're time traveling and going back with penicillin, it's okay. <laughs> Uh, no, Patriot's Day actually is not as bad as the trailer makes it look in that in that aspect of it. But I still kind of came out of it at the end going, so I'm not entirely sure what your message is in this film. Yeah, no, for me, it was just like, fuck me, this is boring. Oh, were you bored by yeah, it? Yeah, I was really bored. I mean, I guess my biggest problem is that it sem- seemed like at some level they wanted to make a documentary. And Kinda, then they yeah. There's so many pe- features of a documentary they're throwing into this. And you're like... Why didn't you just make a documentary? By the way, this is about the Boston Marathon bombings with Mark Wahlberg playing a street cop who is right in the middle of everything. And there's other actors. There's like John Goodman, Kevin Bacon, the Michelle Monaghan. I'm sorry? The yellow M&M. 
The yellow M&M? Uh, uh, J.K. Simmons. Oh was, oh, was he the yellow M&M? Yeah, he's, he's I Santa. Did, I did like, not realize yeah. that. Um, the weirdest thing here is the the wife of one of the terrorists is played by Supergirl, Melissa Benoist, mm-hmm. which I was just was kind of freaking me out watching her. It was this. a little weird. I was like, why why do I know those eyes? Why do I? Do? Oh, snap. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, just be Supergirl from now on. Sorry. I know it's typecasting, but that way we get Supergirl until I die. Yeah, I'm, it's a pretty good type. I'm good. I don't know. I wasn't bored by this, but ultimately it doesn't really have a heck of a lot to do that you probably didn't already know if you were following these things. It's just yeah, turned on the TV. It's not over dramatizing everything. Like I was afraid it was going to get super hyperbolic about everything. I yeah. didn't think I got too carried away with that. Uh, I mean, it's not a it's not a huge flag waver of a movie. No, it wasn't was like uh, hero worshipy. Yeah, uh, but Peter Berg and Mark Wahlberg have had a good history, generally speaking, working together. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but it's a movie they did together the same year, Deep Heart, Deepwater Horizon, also got pretty decent reviews. Yeah, which was on the on the trailers for this. <laughs> was it really? Yes. Uh, I wasn't surprised to hear, though, from people who've seen both. Well, that movie, at least you know what it's about. You know what it's trying to say at the end. This one, you're kind of like, yeah, I still have no idea what you were trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it's okay. I, I I didn't hate it, and I certainly ex- kind of expected to to some degree. That's just the uh, – I'm just anachronistic in that way. Yeah. Um, a, a bunch of bonus features on here, including something that's essentially just the documentary that the movie should have been in the first place. So there you go. And then the actors meeting their real-life counterparts, presumably not Melissa Benoist, but <laughs> <laughs> just going to say – Apparently well, she, she got to meet with Sully. Apparently there's still a lot of controversy about that because she ended up being released and a lot of people feel strongly that she totally knew what was going on and was even involved. But what are you going to do? Yeah, there's, that's, a, that's a debate for a different kind of podcast. It is not the debate for our <laughs> pod- podcast. Let's talk about a movie I think that we can debate the political ramifications of, of which there are none, which is... Oh, I thought it was going to bring down the... <laughs> which is the, the, what were you, what'd you think? I thought it was going to bring down the, 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 uh, the Republic. Well, oh, the, this new movie we're yeah. talking about here, uh, Illumination, Illumination Entertainment <laughs> Sing. Well, I mean, you could argue that this is a reflection of what became that bread and circuses part of TV with all the singing, re- re- performing reality shows. I mean, this is definitely when I watched the trailer, I was like, I do not want to watch this fucking movie because to this day, I do not get the appeal of American Idol. Don't get yeah, it. Yeah, and it, it definitely carries that through. What? Uh, of, of like, Wow. I don't get it. I don't the, like it. The, the appeal of American Idol. See, weirdly though, I came out of this really liking it. What's weird is uh, I, I, I watched it with some friends, and they they all love the CG singing horseshit. They're just super big fans, and um, I knew I wasn't gonna like it, so I was kind of gauging their reactions. And right? They, they were very blah about it. Like. Mm. Okay. I, I mean, that's the thing is like none of the music they're doing here is the type of music that really appeals to me per se on mm-hmm. the whole. I mean, even the the two characters that are punk rock are doing songs that are mildly punk rock at best. <laughs> yeah, bubblegum. Yeah, like punk. this is 311 punk or something, yeah. you know, like, yeah, that doesn't really qualify. The idea being um, Matthew McConaughey plays a koala in this world of anthropomorphized animals named Buster Moon, who owns an old classic hotel. He's always been in love with show business since he was a kid. Uh, but he's g- about to lose the the place, so he put decides he's going to host a singing competition with a prize of a thousand dollars. But his incompetent assistant accidentally prints it saying a hundred thousand dollars. Oopsies! So uh, then all these that starts introducing all these characters around the city that all have their own little weird arcs about you know why they want to do this and what the weird thing is in their life. Like there's a uh, 
a mouse played by Seth MacFarlane named Mike, who's oh, kind of Frank sinatra who was oh. one of the most irritating characters. Yeah, I really wanted to hit him with a Frank fan. You're just like, okay, I get it. It's Seth MacFarlane. He does a Frank Sinatra impression. Uh, Reese Witherspoon as Rosita, who's a pig, who's a mom to like a huge amount of uh, piglets, but has <laughs> found a way by instantly mechanizing her whole house. I'm thinking maybe she'd just get a job doing that for people she instead should. of singing if she wants to make a lot of money. So she could go give up her, uh, go uh, do follow her dreams. Scarlett Johansson is a teenage porcupine punk rocker that uh, is having issues because her boyfriend, who she's in a band with, they want her, not him. And he's all like, well, whatever. It's my um, band. Yeah, I'm about not, to, no interesting side note. That porcupine was originally written as Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> it would have made more sense. John C. Riley is Eddie, who plays a sheep, uh, Buster's friend, who is constantly doubting that things are going to go well. He's like his rich friend who's still like, no, I can't loan you five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tori Kelly is Mina, an elephant with a great voice but serious stage fright. Taron Egerton is Johnny, a, gr- a teenage gorilla whose dad is a member of a crime gang, but he wants doesn't want to do that and be a criminal. He wants to sing instead. Jennifer Saunders. Oh, snap. That's who was doing that. Yeah, as, as uh, a sheep, Eddie's grandmother, who was a who was a singer back in the day, one of the one of the big influences mm-hmm. on our young yes, and, and a lot of other people, like Jennifer Hudson, Garth Jennings, um, Peter Sarah Fenowitz, Nick Kroll, Jay Farrow, Nick Offerman, Leslie Jones, Reed Perlman, Lorraine Newman. I mean, it's a pretty solid voice cast, no question about it, with the possible exception. And I don't normally mind Seth MacFarlane. He just he just that overplays guy. that character to the point where you're like, why is he even... He's given too much time for not he, really enough to do. He's given too much time for nothing to do and not being completely unsympathetic character. Yeah, now, uh, I, I will say, I got no love for the, for the McConaughey, but I liked him in this. You don't like the McConaughey? Not even a true detective? No, I don't care. Not even in... I really don't care. No? No. Okay. okay, those Lincoln commercials are pretty bad. <laughs> no, they're not, actually. <laughs> I've, I've actually still not watched those Lincoln commercials. It's probably because I don't really... Where do... Commercials just don't pop up in my life very often. Uh, no, I watch over the ear stuff, so... Yeah, fair enough. Um, I, I don't know. For me, I actually liked this much more than I expected to. I mean, obviously, you did not have the same result. Results may vary. <laughs> quite. Print on it, But I didn't expect to like this at all. And this is honestly, I think, the best thing Illumination Entertainment has done outside of um, uh, the Despicable Me series, which obviously is not everybody's type of thing either. But God, the stupid minions. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people feel that way. Uh, th- four mini movies on this thing, or I'm sorry, three mini movies and a, and a making of, and then a lot of other very silly bonus stuffs, including music videos with the lyrics printed on them, so you can sing along like the karaoke videos and character profiles. I mean, this is all stuff for little kids. Uh, that's on the extras because honestly, I can't see anybody besides little kids repeatedly rewatching this thing. <laughs> oh God, help you parents who your kid is the one who falls in love with this movie and wants to watch it fifty times because it's not that it's a bad movie. It's just you've got to hear all the songs in this that are generic pop songs a billion fucking times. I don't know. I bet there could be a lot a lot of freshmen in college who are getting home, blazing up, and then popping this in. I can totally see that. Do you really think that's a thing? It, yeah, it is a thing. Not with this movie in particular, but it's a thing. Well, and the thing that that was true of at least uh, like 10 years ago or so, probably longer. <laughs> yes, is, much longer. Uh, 2001's Donnie Darko that's getting a super 4K re-release from Arrow Video 
Um, this was a movie that even though I was not even of the right age for it when it came out, I fell madly in love with this movie. Mm-hmm. This was a big influential film for me, partially because I, I love when films are abstract, but not so abstract. You can't piece it together. I love films about yeah. time travel. You know, um, I, I really I fell in love with Jake Gyllenhaal and Jenna Malone in this film. Both those actors are really still like today. What an odd little film from a director who only had one good film in him, Richard Kelly. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've seen any of his other movies, like The Box and uh, Southland Tales, then you know oh, yeah. okay. he only had one good movie in him, quite frankly. <laughs> and, it, and it was Donnie Darko, for sure. But, you know, you say, okay, they've already put this, re-released this thing, like, God, like six times or something they've re-released it on Blu-ray. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Well, each release comes with a, a, a new Hot Topic t-shirt. They need to. <laughs> that was actually not a bad marketing idea. Now they're going to release it a seventh time. Ooh. But this movie that I, I really do think is is a, a major new classic is why get this one for first off it really is the best looking and sounding this movie has ever been by yeah. a sizable margin yeah quite a bit yeah they they have cleaned this up such a bit uh such such a to such a large amount that even things i remember watching on the previous blu-ray going wow that still doesn't look that great and it's a supposed to be a blu-ray fix-up are now no problem look and sound great uh, there, this has both versions, the theatrical, which is the one to watch, and the director's cut, which is not the no, one to no, watch. No, no, just, just Pasco. <laughs> I mean, if you're that big of a fan, you guys see it. There are a few extra scenes in it that really that are really good with our character scenes, but there's so many, like, moving songs around to different scenes, taking some songs out entirely, weird, uh, totally unnecessary and useless interstitial CG stuff. And it kind of does that thing that, like, the theatrical cut of Blade Runner does, where it's just holding your hand way too much <laughs> when you're like, I, I understand. You don't need to over-explain what's happening. It does. I get it. They're robots. Yeah. Maybe if you, like, watch Donnie Darko and you go, I didn't understand anything that happened in that movie, then maybe you're yeah. the guy what's that's a the plane? director's cut I don't get for. that. <laughs> um, as well, all the previous existing Blu-ray extras have been put in here, which is cool, because uh, there's been a lot with all the different uh, versions in, of here. But this one has actually added on a couple new things, including a brand new 85-minute documentary called Deus Ex Machina, The Philosophy of Donnie Darko, plus a 1996 short by Richard Kelly called The Goodbye Place. Goodbye. So that's pretty cool. Um, The downside being that... Well, I mean, the thing about the the documentary is it's, you know, it is looking back 15 years later and going, well, how does this feel now after all this time? Mm. How is this movie evolved how we feel about it is it dated what have you i mean it was always technically a period piece so yeah um yeah i would say I would only say james duvall came back as an actor for it strangely hmm. the whole rest of the like writer director everybody is there but he's the only actor who's i guess everybody else too big to come back yeah, and talk well, about yeah, except for Jenna Malone. Um, no I, I would say that mental illness is kind of timeless i think it's pretty pretty uh it holds up yeah yeah i i mean i, I like i said i still insists this is a truly great movie and honestly maybe if it didn't grab you when you initially saw it seriously go back and give it another shot because i mean this is one you gave another shot to right you didn't like that much no no the thing is i loved it when it came out but then all the the like fan cult that built up around it just they get a sour taste in my mouth and so I'd really forgotten what my original experience was. So in watching this again, I was like, oh, yeah, I love this fucking movie. Okay. Look, I've been doing this for so long now that <laughs> when that starts to happen, I just ignore it. I don't even hear it. <laughs> I'm just like, to. yeah, yeah. Well, I wasn't a pro back then. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, okay, I get it. You're being obnoxious, but whatever. You know what? Don't speak for me. That's great. You <laughs> like the movie, too, but we are not on the same side. 
Yeah. Uh, don't ever watch the tr- terrible uh, sequel to this film, which does exist. Yeah, yeah, don't do S. that. S. Darko. It is not no. good. Um, which is a shame, because I thought there was the possibility for a great sequel if they had done it at the time, mm-hmm. where you go back to the beginning, but where Donnie has, you know, he's died. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, James Duvall's character of Frank is the main character of the film and Donnie is appearing to him through the mm-hmm. whole movie in the Halloween outfit that he was wearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that would have been cute. Yeah, it was like, oh, wow, we're going through it again because that time bubble is still there. <laughs> anyway, sorry, spoiler maybe a little. Let's move on to Witch Trap. Oh, boy. <laughs> going into the horror movies now. Uh, this is, we're being released through Vinegar Syndrome who, who you never know what you're going to get. No, no. So, sometimes they release some great stuff you've never heard of and other times not so much. This is one of those ones that's like, for those who have an enormous amount of patience with the horror movies of the 80s, but it's got enough, like, ridiculous fun stuff in it that it gets you past how, A, unbelievably bad the acting is. What, like, well, was it bad acting or was it bad overdubbing? I, I, the Good question. There's a lot of ADR <laughs> here as well. Uh, and this is Kevin Tenney who did a Witchboard, a movie that's also bad but from the 80s, but also pretty fun. I mean, but as, as it says on, the, on the, the cover of this, not a sequel to Witchboard. <laughs> I swear it's not the same movie. Um, yeah, but that one had Tawny Katan too, so, you know, big difference. No. This one is, um, it, it's kind of like playing on the legend of Hell House, where it's a bunch of people, including a psychic, that go inside, or a couple psychics who are going inside a surprisingly modern-looking haunted house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it looks like a, a prefab house, and are like, oh, we're totally going to do this story. We're being paid to be here. And one by one, they start being killed off. But is it a ghost or, or a demon, or is it the sinister-looking groundskeeper? I actually really enjoyed it. Okay. Um, I can see that people really enjoying this one. Part of what I really enjoyed about it is it's it's, it's not, you know, like the long-going myth of, of a certain baddie, like certain other other movies that we've watched this week mm-hmm. and it had a reason for doing what it did like the the evil force actually had a, pl- a five-point plan it had powerpoint slides <laughs> and it went through everything it was very organized yeah. for for an evil force it was pretty organized um i also liked that there were some really inventive kills in this one yeah i mean the first kill <laughs> was like i admit i did not see that oh. coming that was a new way to kill someone now i have a new phobia thanks <laughs> Uh, yeah, of all the things that could kill you in the shower, that was not one of the ones that I had thought about. <laughs> uh, the the gore is actually pretty decent in this thing overall. And yeah, it's just as corny as can be, no question. But if corny 80s movies are your thing, which trap I thought was actually moderately entertaining and also, you know, you get the full, you know, a lot of boobs. Yeah. And, you know. Like yeah, they what, start out early. Yeah, yeah, they do. <laughs> this is one of those ones that's not fucking around with the kind of movie it is. And because this is Arrow, it's just loaded down. I'm sorry, this is not Arrow because this is Vinegar Syndrome. It is loaded down with bonus features. Vinegar Syndrome uh, definitely specializes in the super tiny little exploitation in horror films, but they treat them just as lovingly yeah. as... as uh, as what would you say, uh, Criterion does there? Yeah. Only problem is uh, the name. I keep think uh, wanting to call them Vinegar Strokes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, don't do that though. <laughs> uh, commentary from the director, producer, cinematographer, and lead actor. Uh, interviews with almost everybody here, including the FX uh, supervisor, which is always one of the more fun people uh, to look at. If you're going to watch anything on these, it's usually yeah, the FX guys, the one be. you want to see. There's a short film directed by the same director, Kevin Tenney, that have a couple of the same actors from it called Book of Joe, uh, including an alternate ending to said short film. <laughs> it's funny, I didn't read that it was an alternate ending to the short film, and it was the first extra I watched. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, 
this is a really alternate ending. I mean, like, this is, doesn't even have any of the same actors in it. <laughs> it's like drastic choices. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's goofy fun, but it's for a very niche audience, and you know already if that's you. And if you are, I think it's worth getting. I actually kind of enjoyed this next one, this low-budget horror film, brand new to DVD, with the awful name of Child Eater. Let's face it, that was just a bad call in terms of naming a movie. <laughs> Child Eater? Really? Uh but you know it's a tiny tiny little budget film it's starts off exactly how you think it's going to you know there's a little kid who believes the boogeyman's in his closet so of course he is okay. you know because it's a horror movie if it was like some dramedy you'd be like no it's just silly. Steve Martin with a silly hat <laughs> isn't that as gross um and then his babysitter who is um they're trying to take care of him but turns out of course the boogeyman is real and he is in fact this dude who is macular degeneration and eats people's eyes especially kids eyes because he believes they have more power well sure that i guess somehow help him see better it's never entirely well the eyes haven't seen as much chris i guess that's it um and that's and but you know the thing is he was a real killer from before and now i guess he's back from the dead they're never entirely clear on what's going on there but i think what makes makes this work is the creature really is fucking pretty creepy looking some of the kills are pretty good okay I didn't think was even all that bad for a really micro-budgeted horror like this. I mean, it's it's one of those ones where I suspect this director is going to go on and make better stuff than this, but he definitely has a good eye for horror. Well, how old is this movie? It just came out. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's pretty new, so it's like, okay, there you go. Um, yeah, I can see why you might skip a movie called Child Eater, but if you're a real big horror fan and, and you don't mind corny stuff, uh, this is a pretty... Pretty good modern corny horror. Right. I thought so. Did you get to watch this one? No, I didn't get to. Okay, fair enough. I can understand with the title like Child Eater where you were like, <laughs> I'm not watching that. Well, uh, it was it was up after another one, uh, Bye Bye Man. Oh, I was, you I were was, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, Well, let's talk about a movie that is coming out from, that came out from Arrow that is old horror comedy that I do think is worth your time, even though it definitely is a product of its Time. Oh, quite so. It's pretty <laughs> fucking dated, and that is 1986's House. Now, I, I mean, if you were to put this exact same movie out now, everyone would make fun of it and it'd be forgotten. Yes. But there is something kind of charming about this movie, and I admit a lot of this is warm, nostalgic remembrances <laughs> of seeing this thing in the theater, partially because the lead actor here, uh, William Catt, was concurrently starring as the greatest American hero yes. on TV, yes, he which was. is like, was the greatest TV show it in the really world was. at the time. I, I've tried watching it again, and then I've been like, Mm, I'm going to pass. I just, yeah, let's I'm just like, remember how I used to feel about it. Exactly. Still a show you're like, seriously, nobody is rebooting that? Seriously? Yeah. That seems like if there was ever anything prime for a reboot. That yeah, come on, Hollywood. Free, free money. Uh, he plays an author who is uh, like just separated from his wife. His son, dis- his Jimmy, disappeared about a year or so before. And he's showed up at this house, this beautiful old Victorian, creepy looking mansion. Uh, his aunt killed herself by hanging we find out that he actually kind of grew up in this house with his aunt raising him and it was in this house that his son disappeared really mysteriously like right in front of his eyes Mm -hmm. gone yep um and he starts he's like well i'm gonna live here for a while and try and finish this book that i'm writing about one man's war uh, his story of <laughs> vietnam which is agent who should, at one point is like yeah don't do that and nobody wants to hear about that is <laughs> absolutely right nobody wanted to hear about that but uh he has a, a vision of his aunt saying, which is key to the rest of the movie, saying, the house, it tricked me. I never thought it could, but it did. It'll trick you, too, and force you to kill yourself. Aha. That's the key <laughs> phrase of the film. The house can't do anything to hurt you, 
but it can trick you into hurting yourself. It's a big trick. And the deal is, it's like, yeah, it's not one of those subtle tricksters. It pretty much straight up goes, you know what reality's like? Well, here's this other entirely <laughs> different thing that that's all you can see. Good luck. Yeah, fuck drugs. I got a house. And, I mean, this, you know... Isn't scary. No, no I mean, not at all. At its worst, the Vietnam stuff is really kind of ham-handedly crowbarred into well, it. It's uh, so Richard Mole uh, has a pretty big part in the, the Vietnam stuff. Yeah, and, Bull and, from Night Court. Yeah, and that's all I can see. It's like, oh, Bull's got hair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, he's one of the in all the major flashback sequences in here, and then towards the end of the film, he plays William Katz's best friend back in Vietnam. Um, you know, I think that what that ends up playing out as is fun, but mm-hmm. along the way, you're like, can we please stop it with the Vietnam flashbacks already? <laughs> um, George Went is actually one of the best things in this movie, I thought. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Norm from Cheers, who's his next door neighbor, who's just a big fan of uh, Roger Cobb, William Cat's character, his writing, but is kind of like, uh huh, dude's going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and he's trying to be a good neighbor, like almost too good, <laughs> straight from the get go. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're kind of like, I wouldn't be that good even if that dude was a famous <laughs> writer. There's a lot of fun to be had here. I mean, it's so cartoonish, though. Like, there's nothing about this. I mean, this is like a starter horror movie. It's yeah. like your 12-year-old yeah. kid who's, like, interested about horror but doesn't want to be too scared. This is the perfect movie for that. Yeah, it's not dark. Like, at least, like you know, lighting-wise, it's never really dark. No. It's pretty damn light. Yeah, and I mean, even what gore there is is so cartoonish. I mean, all the monsters are, like, they look... They look like they're taken directly from the pages of EC Comics. And I don't mean, like, we want them to kind of look like that. I mean, like, somebody, like, had a laser that scanned the image yeah. of the, the cartoon and brought them into real life. Yeah, because, like, uh, the Screxies in, in Dark Crystal were far scarier looking than the monsters. <laughs> yeah, they're not scary. They're more funny looking, you yeah. know. Uh, but there's, I mean, the way this thing plays with reality and time and space is is fun. Ultimately, in the end, you're like, well, none of that made any sense, but it was it was a goofy good time for what it is. Yeah, that's all it was. Uh, not so much the other film that comes in this two-film set from, from Arrow, House 2, that mysteriously does, in fact, have a big fan club for it. Does uh, it now? Uh, I, I, all I can chalk that up to is, A, some people just really love goofy monster creation. I'll get that, because there's some really fun, goofy monsters created for the second one. But they're, okay. they're going the realm of, aren't they adorable? Wait, 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 wait. Is Cliff Clavin in the second Cliff one? Cliff Clavin is in the John Ratzenberger. They, they bring him into the second one as like a like a uh, electrician who's also an adventurer. So does, it's like, does he do the Cliff There's a voice? great scene where he's like, you know, he pulls, he's working the wires, and he comes out, and he's pulled a hole all in the wall. He's like, yeah, see what you got here is an interdimensional uh, doorway. Yeah. I've I, seen this kind of thing before. <laughs> yeah, we used to have this uh, back there behind the uh, juice. I mean, it's in this one, it's a different house. It's a big Mayan theme, like Aztec type theme, the house. You're like, okay, clearly something's wrong with this place. Uh, and it's, it's flat out of comedy. Like, these guys read this thing about how their great, great, great grandfather in the Old West found this crystal skull and that had supposedly magic multidimensional powers, but no one knows what happened to it. And they decide to dig up his body, and there's the skull. But Grandpa's still alive, because the skull keeps him alive. Oh, and at cool. first you're like, it's going to be scary. But no, he's like the old Grandpa in the Dukes of Hazard. You know? Okay, Uncle he's Jesse. Like, yeah, he's like kindly old Uncle Jesse, who's there in the whole movie going, you kids, you're great, I love you. Let me tell you stories about the oh, old times. Oh, that's, that's friendly. Yeah. I saw Ari Gross. Is Ari Gross in this too? <laughs> yeah, Ari Gross plays the lead role in this thing. All right. Um, um, you know, a lot of, just like with House 2, there's a lot of familiar faces in this thing, but 
the problem is, like I said, it's as much as House One is totally not really a horror movie, but it does have a lot of big horror elements in it. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean. There's almost no horror elements in this at all. I mean, it's Aww. like, yeah. So the grandpa and the bad main bad guy, another old West fighter, have a zombified look to them, but like super cartoony. <laughs> the, something that would be okay on a Saturday morning cartoon show. I mean, it's just so goofy. Along the way, they pick up a like caterpillar crossed with a puppy, and that becomes their pet, and yeah. they have a baby pterodactyl that's adorable. And you're like, what the fuck is going? Who on? is this movie's for? I'm not clear on who this movie's supposed to be for. But, um, I mean, I guess, what the hell, if you're going to buy House 1, why not get the set that's got both Shit, of them on it? As long as it's free. And there's a lot of bonus features that come with this thing, which is kind of fun. Um, each just comes with its own stuff with lots of, each one having a full hour-long documentary about the making of, which is yeah, pretty cool. Okay. So, yeah, pretty solid. I mean, if you've never seen at least the first house, I really, I recommend checking it out. You may go, man, what did anybody ever see in this fucking <laughs> thing? But it's goofy fun. Can't say the same thing for The Bye-Bye Man. Fuck this movie. <laughs> which is a new new film. Um, okay, now, I didn't hate this movie, partially because I was too busy laughing at it. Uh-huh. I was, like, so amused by all the major mistakes it was making at every turn that I actually was starting to have kind of fun with it. Um, the one d- thing I will say, The Bye-Bye Man himself, guys, I feel so stupid just saying his name, uh-huh. uh, I played by Doug Smith. Uh, you know, I actually think he's really effectively creepy looking. He's a cool looking creation. The problem is the actual rules of this. Wait, oh no, wait. There are practically are no rules, and what rules there are make absolutely no fucking sense. I mean, it's kind of hard when you have your lead villain is essentially God. Yeah, there's nothing you can really do to stop him. And like the rule is, oh, it's fine. He can't do anything to you as long as you've never heard of him. Okay, well that's pointless to me. Oh, so let me let me ask you, what was his fucking motivation? That's Why the was problem. he doing all this? He's based on a really obscure urban legend. Okay. That they never bothered to tie into the plot of the film. Okay. Even all the details, like for some reason he's got this big burnt looking like yeah, mastiff yeah, dog the thing. that drags people away. Yeah, part of the urban legend, not even mildly explained here in the story. <laughs> You're like, no. wait, what? He's got all these specific things that are from the urban legend that make sense, supposedly, in the urban legend. But here they're like, okay, I guess that's a thing. And it's a bunch of dumb teenagers who couldn't act their way out of a wet paper bag. No. I, will, I do want to ask. How in the hell is they college students with that house? Yeah. Yeah, like a, this beautiful, huge house. Gigantic. Like, you would have to have like 15 people living there to afford that. Place. I mean, sure, it's got the prisoner basement, but whatever. Like, that's <laughs> part of the charm. Uh, you know, I mean, there's just it's hard to root for anybody here. There's so many obvious things in it. They're like, And the idea is that he doesn't even kill you. He... Once again, like in house, tricks you into seeing stuff and believing that like you're seeing things that aren't happening. Like it keeps making the one character think his other two roommates are sleeping with each other yeah. and he's dating the girl. That in house was fun because it was done fun. It was like, right. oh, this is goofy and ridiculous. Here it's like, oh, it's serious. Well, yeah, and people were <coughs> slightly bags of shit, so yeah. you didn't really give a, a crap when yeah. they got killed. They're not even bags of shit enough for me to care that they right. got killed. You know, yeah. it's like, uh-uh. eh. I mean, I don't know. This is, I mean, I wanted to see more Carrie Ann Moss because she's one of the few good actors in this thing. Yeah, I was as surprised. A detective, so, and what, she's just in and out. Yeah, what are you doing here, lady? <laughs> yeah, I recognize you. What happened? Uh, and Faye Dunaway has a, has a small role in here as well. Uh, I don't know, man. This is, I guess there's some amusement in just seeing what an utter train wreck this thing is, but like. Oh, I, I get you from that one scene. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah. 
<laughs> but overall, I'd say Bye Bye Man is more like the Skip It Man. Bye Bye Man. As is. Okay, now here's the thing I don't get. I did not ask you to watch this because I would not wish this on my worst enemy. Okay. But there are people, and there's a lot of them out there clearly because this film spawned three or four sequels. I think I think it's only three, but I, I thought I remember they were working on a fourth one. In the 80s, apparently in Germany, they weren't able to get access to a lot of the horror movies that were coming out. Mm. And this was a source of frustration to what horror fans were there who had seen enough horror to want more. So this one guy, uh, Andreas Schnass, decided he was going to start making his own just ultra gorehound horror movies with like a $1.25 budget. <laughs> and the first film, which ended up becoming like a series, is Violent Shit is the name of it. And okay. it is the lowest budget thing you... I have Super 8 films from my childhood in the 70s that have a better production value than this movie. Okay. It is so low quality, and it's like this kid, when he's a kid, he kills his mom, and then suddenly he's grown up, and he's just wandering around the countryside, brutally murdering people, progressively getting gorier and gorier, except okay. for the fact that whenever it's a close-up of gore, it gets strangely pixelated. Wow. So you can't see, like how not great the effects are. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, loving shots of him, like, you know, with the knife in someone kind of twisting it around so the blood spray can shoot out for, like, literally 45 seconds sometimes. Mm -hmm. You're like, we get it. <laughs> and the one thing I'll say about it, and this is the only one from this new Violent Shit collection I, I could bring myself to watch, at some point, he meets, uh, he has a flashback of being a kid and discovering Satan was his father. All and right. then he finds Jesus in the woods, nailed to a cross, okay. and he cuts Jesus open and climbs inside of him. Uh, to sleep? I'm not sure. Hmm. It really did not fit in with anything else that was <laughs> happening in the story, nor does it connect with the sequels from what I've read. I, I don't I don't know, man. I mean, maybe if this type of, if you grew up watching this and this is like a laugh a minute for you, I just find these so fucking boring myself. There's mm. nothing to this at all. And while I hear the the... The look, the quality of the camera work, you know, or the rather just the film stock in general went up over the years with the new movies. The quality of the films really did not. Uh, if you're really into this sort of thing, this comes with a bonus feature uh, along with the violent, four violent shit movies of Zombie 90 Extreme P Pestilence, which was the second movie he made after Violent Shit, which I'm told is also equally not really worth watching unless this sounds exactly like your type of thing. <laughs> I mean, I could see some people who get off on this sort of stuff, like it, like find it very entertaining. Like, oh, this is the this is the trashiest of the trashy, right? You know, um, but that's not me. I need a little plot. Uh, okay, now this next thing we're going to talk about it's another it's another series. It's from Arrow. It's trashy and it's badass, but in a in a beautiful kind of way. And we're talking about Takashi Miike's, which everyone's like, "Oh, that's all you had to say." <laughs> Takashi Miike's Dead or Alive trilogy. Man, when I posted on Facebook, I was watching Dead or Alive. Yeah, you got lots of hits. Yeah, lots of people going, "Why are you watching that?" And it was like, "Not the video game movie." Like, oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hold on. Eric Roberts ain't here. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I swear. This is not the video game movie. This is a movie from uh, was it the, the late 90s and the early 2000s that Mike did kind of midway through his film career, pretty much. Well, I mean, he was at this point still known as the, the, the like, Yakuza director. Yeah, he wasn't, he hadn't gone, this is one of the early ones for him going, starting to go a little crazy with his films. Yeah, it was, it was like just a little bit before Visitor Q, which kind of really marks, like, audition of Visitor Q really mark like, oh, this dude's insane, but I want to watch this insane. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um and as these go along, I'd say to some degree they get more insane. Oh, yeah. You know, the first film, despite the style being so manic and disturbingly violent, like, 
Not till the very last sequence does it go full blown. What Ridiculous. the fuck <laughs> was that? Uh, and the, the real attraction is it stars these two really great Japanese actors. Yeah, Riki Takeuchi and Sho Aikawa. Yeah, who play in all, all three of these movies. Like, they're the two lead characters, although none of, in no other way other than they're in it and Mike is directing, are they connected, really? There's an insinuation in the third film that maybe they've gotten some awareness that mm, they're living their parallel lives. Yeah. But it, even so, it's more of, it feels like an editing afterthought. <laughs> uh, like maybe, I think I get, from what I was reading, it sounds like when they made the third one, they didn't even know it was going to be the last one until they were almost done. And Probably. I think, I think that was like, okay, we'll throw that in there to give the sense, series a sense of closure or something. But yeah, I mean, the first movie is like, they're like, one's a cop, one's a, one's a, a, a Yakuza gangster. guy, yeah. gangster, and they end up at odds against each other and there's lots of boobs and the, the, one of the most disturbing Mike things I've ever seen with a girl who's like floating and dying in a tub filled with her own excrement. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's, it's no, uh, breast milk angels, but what no. is, Hey, but that's hot. Come on. <laughs> um, he's talking about Visitor Q in case you didn't know <laughs> but uh, honestly the style of that one despite a relatively mundane Yakuza plot the style per, like propels you through right. it it's very violent it's, it's basically it's it's reading through the phone book Mike style yeah um, the second one well, you tell, talk about the second one. Uh, I, I didn't get to watch it, so I forgot. Wait, I thought you've seen all three of these. I have, but that was like 15 right, years the ago. The second one is Dead or Alive 2 Birds. Uh, where, And this is the one where th- that I actually kind of like the best in a way. Um, they, The two of them are both contract killers. They find out they're on the same job and then find out that, holy shit, we used to be best friends when we were kids. That's what that one is. And they go and they have this big weird in the middle of the thing bonding experience. They go back to the island they grew up on. They end up putting on a completely absurd chill. Children's play for the kids at the orphanage where they grew up Aww. on. It goes on for like ten minutes, and it's so fucking weird. It's like watching Mighty Morphin Power Rangers on stage if it was on lots of acid. Like, what is happening right now? And then they decide they're going to team up and use their skills to be a force for good. Yeah. I mean, the idea that they go, we're going to kill all these people, I mean, for contract money and donate all that money to charities, and that will make us heroes. But we still get to kill them. Yeah, we still get to kill them, so it's all good. Uh, And and then the third movie, Dead or Alive Final, that I was talking about as well, um, it's... Futuristic. uh, I'm not... Yeah, it starts off like, are you trying to make Blade Runner? Because there's the thing where one of them is a replicant, yeah. but th- that means he's got superpowers and stuff. Right, yeah. So that one's kind of difficult because uh, like, two kind of like got lost for me, even though it's pretty good. Three sticks out in my mind because it's fairly stupid, <laughs> and then the video quality is just all over the place. Yeah, it's that's the thing is it was a lot of it was shot on video instead of film, and even on this upgraded one, which they've done their best to fix up as best as they can, it's not. It's the worst looking of the three, and in fact, even the um, uh, the subtitles that were Japanese or Chinese are hard encoded onto the film. So there's an apology <laughs> so at first, but they're is. like, "This is the only version that exists of this, so you have to. We're going to put our subtitles with the black borders over that." But that's as good as we're ever going to get. But you know, I mean, like. It's worth watching. This is definitely more of that. This is the beginning of Mike turning into the Mike we know today. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's got both that Yakuza stuff and the super wacky what the fuck was that stuff in it. <laughs> but never really fully committed to either. It's an interesting halfway step. But I'll tell you what, if you've never uh, really experienced these actors, this is a really good excuse to do it. I mean, they are are so much fun. I especially like Riki Takakuchi. 
uh, who's got this great Elvis Buffon hair. Oh, he's always wearing sunglasses. He's kind of like a young beat Takeshi or something. <laughs> yeah, like like I told you off mic, uh, Shoei Kawa is one of my favorite Japanese actors. <coughs> like uh, just him and Tadanobu Asano are just some of my favorite actors in general. Uh, and it was the Dead or Alive series that really got uh, Mike to be kind of inspired and reuse Aikawa in many different ways. Mm. Um, it's neat watching these guys like play these different roles who apparently are good friends in real life as well, like all three of them and have appeared in those two guys have appeared in other movies uh, together before and since. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a decent amount of bonus features on here. There are specific ones on the, the first disc, uh, to the, the first two movies. And then on the third disc, there's a bunch of overall stuff, interviews with, uh, Riki Takuchi, Showa Aikawa and, and, uh, Takashi Mike. So pretty cool. You know, mm-hmm. subtitled, mind you, so you don't have to be Japanese to enjoy it. But yeah, I would say overall, if you consider yourself a Mike fan at all, this is kind of essential. Which is great because Mike never interviews well. No. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to know what the fuck he's talking about. Yeah, you don't even know if he's in the same room. Yeah, very true. He just kind of drifts off. All right, let's talk about another Asian film. This one's uh, the Hong Kong movie called Three. I was excited to see this because, A, it's by director Johnny Toe, who's had a back-and-forth career, but he's done some really good films over the year. Mm-hmm. Like, Full-Time Killer was one of my favorites by him. Uh, and I was like, okay, it's got a lot of, like, kind of more recent big stars, like Wallace Chung uh, and Zhao Wai. But it got great reviews. And I'm like, okay, well, let's see what the deal is with this. I thought it was going to be an anthology film by the title. Still no idea why it's called Three, really. No clue. Uh, uh, I guess because well, there's three like actors. Three, <laughs> I, I think uh, the actual title is something like uh, Three People Story or something like that. Okay, well, that makes sense, I guess. Uh, the idea being is that this Wallace Chung's character, Shun, is a thug. He's been shot in the head by a police officer. And he's taken to the hospital, and for some reason he's claiming human rights. He doesn't want the surgery to remove it. And they're like, look, you are going to die very soon if we don't give you the surgery. He's like, nope, not going to do it. And this is driving everybody crazy there. Uh, But the detective sees that he's biding his time because he's waiting for his gang to come up and and, and grab him out of here. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, you realize the entire movie is just building up the pieces for a big action set piece at the end that people raved about. And I was like... I'm not even sure how this made sense. Like, it's <laughs> yeah. doing stuff, like, with lots of stuff with slow motion, but where, like, for some reason, some people are in slow motion and others aren't at any given time. Yeah, it was kind of like bullet time-ish, sort it, of. It was like half bullet time. I, I don't know what was going on, but it it didn't make any sense to me. I was not crazy about this. No, it, it, was, it was also a snooze fest to get all the way oh, up there. so boring. I don't understand what the great reviews were. Like, the whole thing is in this ER Introducing you, giving you lots of details about characters that ultimately don't matter nope, at all. Not at all. In the slightest. You know, some amount of, ex- oh my god, the detective is kind of a corrupt cop. Oh no. Oh gee, you think so? Like maybe? Like, <laughs> I, it, in Hong Kong? No. I just don't care enough. Three I thought was ultimately skippable, but maybe you want to find out for yourself. A lot of critics really liked it. It did pretty good in China. What I'll, are you I'll, do? Put, I'll, I'll say this for it. Great McDonald's product placement. <laughs> yeah, seriously. They like go all over the... Oh, man, McDonald's is awesome. A film I liked a lot better, but this is because it's more of a film that speaks for me from China, is the film Swordmaster. This is a very... Almost a straight-up just tribute to the Wuxia films of Chewy Hark. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, Chewy Hark helped, uh, co-wrote the screenplay and produced it, although it's directed by Derek Yi. Now, at first, this movie is probably going to turn you off like it did me because this whole intro scene is like 90% CG and 10% live action. You're like, why? Why mm-hmm. is this happening? 
like a fat fight scene. But then it, even though there's coloring it with CG through the rest of it, it just never really does that again through the rest of the film. Yeah, it gets more practical. But I mean, it's it's also kind of confusing. I would say very confusing kind of following the plot. I actually had to stop it and read the plot online to figure out what the fuck was going on in the first 30, 40 minutes yeah, of this movie. I, I went to get uh, some toast out of my toaster oven, and when I came back, I was like, who the fuck is that? I, right? Because it <laughs> just suddenly switches to totally different characters. It follows an assassin named Yi Shishan, played by Peter Ho, who's got like a tattoo of like a snake or something all over his I face. I couldn't tell what the hell that was. Uh, it follows a uh, stranger named Achi played by Kenny Lynn, who seems very upset about something and we're never really clear what till much later who ends up working at a brothel and then he like ends up going home with one of the prostitutes to be a helper family and you're like, oh, he's the nicest guy in the world. And and then they're always like, the, the whole time they're talking about like th- this, uh, there's a third master somewhere in here. You're like, well, clearly it's the super nice guy who doesn't yeah, want Yeah, stick back over here. So once you figure out what's going on and everything comes together, you're like, okay, fine. The plot doesn't matter in most of the Wushu films. It's about how goddamn pretty they are. Yeah, I want to see some ass And how good the action is. And on that level, I think this actually does what it's supposed to do pretty darn well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very colorful. There's a lot of inventiveness uh, in the fights and the special effects in this thing. Yeah, occasionally it throws over too much CG on top of things where you go, fuck, why did you do that? Just don't do that. You're not China. You are just not good at CG. Yeah, guys, let's calm it down. Let's calm it down. You're just kind of bad at that. But Yeah, there's a love story in here, which is uh, extremely confusing, but so is love. So <laughs> I don't know if I would equate necessarily the reasons they're confusing, but, you know, I get what you mean. Yeah, I'm black and white. I mean, if you like Wusha films, this is one that a new one that actually is worth watching. Yeah. Uh, I had a lot of fun with this once I got past the point of being able to understand what the fuck was going on. And, and by the end, I was like, I got to admit, I kind of thoroughly enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah. It was neato. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a kind of murder. I wanted to see this because I really like a talent, the talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, and this is based on a book called the blunderer by the same writer, Patricia Highsmith. I also really like Patrick Wilson, uh, who's plays the lead actor here. Not a huge fan of Jessica Biel, but good news. She's not in it that much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Peter Patrick Wilson plays an architect uh, by day, a wannabe novelist at night. He's working on his next book, and his problem is that he and his wife, Jessica Beale, are starting to not get along. Um, she's She's got some issues. She's got some major issues. And, you know, if you ever leave me, I'll kill myself type of stuff. I've been in those relationships. I have, too. <laughs> not awesome. And he gets fascinated when he hears a tale of this guy locally um, who uh, played by Eddie Marsan, who we already see as an audience has murdered his wife, yes. but managed to set the whole thing up so they can't prove he did it. And there's a very overexcited police officer played by uh, Vincent Carthizer from Mad yeah. Men and Angel. Pete. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Angel's son from Angel. Um, oh, snap. He's Connor? Yeah. I'd never put that together. That's why I always had trouble with him in Mad Men because I just wanted to punch him in the face. Well, all the now, time. I, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you as an audience member, when Jessica Beale suddenly disappears and is found dead in the exact same spot this guy's wife was, you're like, is this a copycat murder? Is this a strangers on the train type situation? And the movie slowly pieces out this information. The problem is by the end, I can't remember if he did it or not. I don't, I don't remember I, either. It, it just didn't stick with me, this film. It, it was, was very – I'm not even sure if it said who well, killed her. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing is it was very noncommittal. Yeah. That's part of what I had a problem with. Yeah. I, I, I just chalked it up to the bye-bye man. There's, uh, what, what, you're going to blame the bye-bye man for everything <laughs> this week? Uh, I can't blame you. That's hard not to do. I mean uh, – 
I, Patrick Wilson, even who I normally really like in things, seems like he's just not committed to this material. No, the only guy who seems committed at all is Eddie Marsan, and he's overplaying it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I just the biggest problem here is that this is a mediocrely directed film and needs a eight more script passes. Um, it needed a reason for me to care. Yeah, and he just didn't. Like, we needed more time with the couple in the beginning yes. to understand them before, like, so we really had strong feelings one way or the other. Right. And, and right from the beginning with her, it's like, man, she's a crazy fucking bitch. Yeah, you know so, what? She's got problems. Maybe they're not her fault, but either way, I don't want to be around her. Yeah. Um, I, I got to say, this is one of those ones. I, I, I just say straight up, skip it. Forget it exists. Um, all right, so this next one was not for me, but a lot of people really loved it, and Dude, I see what they like about it. Was it was damn awesome. At first, when I read the title, I was like, God damn it, Chris, not another one. <laughs> another bad horror movie. It's yeah. called The Creeping Garden, so you can see why you're like, ugh. This is not a horror movie. Not at all. I was super pleasantly surprised. A lot of people love this. This played at Fantastic Fest where I did not see it at. I watched on Blu-ray. Sometimes documentaries like this are really your thing, and sometimes they're not. And obviously it was for you, and it wasn't for me. We should have gotten Ashley Moreno's take on the. I'm sure she would have loved it. Yeah, but it's about slime mold, people. Slime mold. They're amoebas, okay? uh, They're they're not plants. They're yeah. not animals. And they're they're not fungi. Nope. They're like they're their whole own thing. And at first it's really fascinating. So they're watching these things that are completely like this unique thing that crawl along. Like they mm. have their own existence. They move and and absorb things. And then it starts getting really weird with like experiments people are doing with music with them and and uh like this visual artist who is creating art by manipulating slime molds to like make them do shapes and stuff and experiments with people to give them the same information as slime molds and see if they behave in the same way. It's a weird (laughs) fucking documentary, but not in the sense that like, it's weird. You don't understand what's going on. Just like who, who thought let's do a documentary about slime molds and approach it in this way. I mean, like there was the documentary about people having sex with cars. So like, I I feel that this is totally on the table. Yeah. I mean, I I agree. I'm not like, they shouldn't have done it. I just, there was a point I was like, okay, now I'm just kind of losing interest. Uh, you know, well, I can see that me. too, but everyone else I know has seen this movie totally loved it. Yeah, and yeah, it is, it's, it's, it's odd. There's nothing else like it. Yeah. That's what I liked about it. <laughs> uh, good music to this thing too, composed by uh, Jim O'Rourke, who is a pretty well-known, um, uh, musician himself worked with a lot of people with jazz, noise, electronica and rock music. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of feeling of like, even as you're watching this, the documentary of bringing back stuff like the blob, you know, yeah. like that same feel they're trying to create. And these things are creepy. You're like, Ugh. well, I mean, they they are of this earth, but they feel not of this earth. And there's this particular slime mold that's called the dog penis because mm. it kind of looks like one. It does kind of. That's look pretty like cool. <laughs> you were like all about that. You're like, oh, dude, dog <laughs> penis. I'm in. And there's a lot of bonus features. This is Arrow putting this out. Odd choice for Arrow. Unusual choice. All I can mm-hmm. assume is they've got a regular staff attending Fantastic Fest, which is Must fine be, with yeah. me. Uh, but a lot of follow-ups with stuff that uh, in the segments of the film with more stuff on it. A couple of short films from the people who were doing the things with the the uh, um, manipulating the slime molds to do cool visual stuff. This is just a weird thing. Um, yeah. I don't know. There's a soundtrack bonus CD that comes with it. What? Oh, that's right. I, I was wondering why. I was like, how did I get a CD in here? <laughs> well, there you go. That's why. 
All right, so I guess if we're getting to arty stuff, which mm-hmm. which we are, we're going to get into a older re-release here of The Lovers on the Bridge. Now, I know you guys are like, ugh, the arty stuff. I hate this segment. <laughs> well, this is by direct French film from 1991, directed by, and I don't know if I'm saying his name even vaguely right, but Leos Carax, who you're like, okay, I don't know who that is. And, but you probably do. He directed that movie, Holy Motors, that was kind of a monster art house weirdo uh, yeah, from say. 2012. Well, we're seeing. Really okay. good movie. And it also starred uh, the same lead that he has in this film, um, uh, Dennis Levant, who is just an odd-looking motherfucker. But this was a film with a young Juliette Binoche, who is kind of uglying herself up for the role. The idea being they actually literally built a bridge to film this thing, like a a whole fake bridge is the set. And it's this homeless guy that Levant plays who lives on this bridge and, you know, does his best to scrabble for food and whatever he can. And, and this woman comes into onto the bridge to try and sleep there played by Julie Benou. She's got like an eye patch over one eye. And apparently she's got some sort of macular disease that she's going to go completely blind. No, that's a shame. She's a child eater. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) And they form this weird sort of like life affirming friendship that takes some very odd turns as they go about, you know, stealing stuff so they can have fun. Mm -hmm. But, Something happens when he finds out that there's a call out looking for her because they found a cure and he doesn't want her to go away back to her normal life. So he starts trying to hide from her the fact that there is a cure for her condition, uh, which obviously causes some complications. Yeah, that's a sore spot. But I actually thought this was a really charming, weirdo romance film. Like, I mean, it's it's weird, but you never don't know what's going on. It's just how strange a love story between two homeless people on a bridge. I mean, uh, at the hobo camp behind the Starbucks, I've heard some of those those uh, those homeless love uh, yeah, well, sessions. You, those the real ones are probably not. Yeah. Oh. But you know, they're both like addicted to alcohol and whatever drugs they can get their hands on, and and he's a. They're both thoroughly fucked up people. But you know, watching them do stuff like they steal a police boat at one point to go water skiing. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very strange stuff. Uh, b- incredibly gorgeous scene with fireworks over the city, which is, you know, a, is practically right above their bridge. It's just gorgeous. This director really knows how to work with cin- cinematography. And it's a, just a gorgeous looking film that is, I think, going to be really appealing to a certain niche group of film goers. I'm not always the biggest French film guy, but I really mm. liked this movie a lot. Well, uh, this and another film got accidentally put in my watched pile. Oh, I know. I know how that goes. So I, I, I don't know. A couple weeks that happened to me. I was like, <laughs> oh shit, I was supposed to watch that. There's a 10 page booklet that comes with this with an essay by a film critic. Uh, there's a video essay about it. Um, and not a bunch more, but honestly, this is one of those little films that kind of disappeared for the purposes of most Americans, but if you remember fondly liking Holy Motors, then this is a movie you might want to check out. Uh, going to our Criterion Pick of the Week, not necessarily Pick of the Week, but the Criterion movie we got right. sent, is Being There. This is the movie I loved the shit out of when I was a kid. I actually read the book first by Jerzy Kaczynski, who was one of my favorite authors growing up. Uh, if you never read his The Painted Bird, it's mm. amazing. So great. But Being There is probably his maybe his most famous book, partially because of this adaptation directed by Hal Ashby, great comedy director, bringing Peter Sellers as his lead, who is one of the greatest co- comic actors in film oh, yeah. of all well, time. Extremely. Uh, this was the other one that was in. The- oh no, you didn't get to watch <laughs> no. this one. See, I was looking forward to it. This is one of the great yeah. ones this week. Uh, Peter Sellers plays a guy named chance who is a middle-aged guy. who has got something's wrong with his brain. You're never really quite clear what, but he's, 
extremely simple. He's got a very childlike mind, and all he knows is being a gardener. Okay. Like, that's all he understands. It's, and he's good at it, but that's all he knows. He's been living in the townhouse of an old, very rich guy in Washington, D.C., but when the old guy dies, uh, he has no claim on the estate, uh, and so he's ordered to move out. So he's just wandering around the outside world, and kind of he gets hit by a car by some very rich political, like, Mover and Movers shaker. and shakers. The wi- the wife of one, played by a, sh- a, a young, still sexy as hell, Shirley MacLaine. Okay. Man, when she was young, she was just so fucking hot. Oh, my God. Before she got into all the crystals and shit. Um, <laughs> she saw that one coming. Yeah. <laughs> you think she would have, right? And they're like, oh, let us take care of you. And they, you know, talking to him like you would to anybody, assuming he's not simple. And the things he says are he's talking about gardening and they think he's making like these incredible insightful metaphors about <laughs> politics. So he's becoming like a guru of sorts. So he starts like, you know, he, he gets to the point where like the, the old guy, her husband is really old and he's dying is like, I want you to be there for my wife when I'm not there and thinks that he's got poli- a chance being a politi- politician of his own. And they That's introduce him to the wrong. <laughs> they introduce him to the president played by Jack Warden, uh, who is also extremely impressed with him. It's just like, man, this guy's a g- political genius. <laughs> and the truth is, I mean, they, he's a Zam Chauncey, the gardener. And they thought he said Chauncey Gardner. So that becomes his full name. Hey, that's how names are made. And this is just a really, really funny clever, still completely politically relevant film, more so maybe now than it ever was before, of just how clueless people are in D.C. when they just hear what they want to hear about stuff. And it's, I would say this is honestly a comedy masterpiece. I'm surprised it took Criterion so long to get around to releasing this thing. It won the Oscar for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. Hmm. Um, and uh, it's, I think it got nominated for more stuff. I'm not, I can't remember offhand. Uh, but yeah, it's it's on AFI's a hundred years, a hundred laughs list. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a classic, classic movie and the ending will make you go, wait, what are you saying? There's a very odd and funny choice they make at the end that Mm. I, I don't believe was the ending of the book. It's been too long since I've read it that recontextualizes everything about Chauncey Gardner in a very funny, but sort of like, well, wait, what does that mean in terms of what the movie was saying politically? Are you saying he turned into Ronald Reagan? No, not really. (laughs) But somebody who thought they were as important as Ronald Reagan. This is a classic. You should go out of your way to watch it. Lots of bonus features on here, of course, because it's Criterion, including deleted scenes and outtakes, I believe, has never have never been seen before. Uh, a brand new 48-minute Making of Being There, brand new documentary about this, uh, how it started, how to adapt its unusual narrative structure to it. Um, a long audio excerpt from Hal Ashby giving a seminar at the American Film Institute in L.A. in 1980. A uh, really great interview with, with uh, Dick Cavett on the Dick Cavett Show with Jersey Kaczynski, the writer... And then a couple always funny interviews uh, from talk shows with Peter Sellers about it, which is really cool. This is definitely one I would say go way out of your way for. In fact, I'm just going to call this my pick of the week. Which there, there you go. It, so. um, another movie I really enjoyed, but that has gotten mixed reviews over the years. People either love it or they're like, yeah, I, I don't think this is a very good movie. And I, <laughs> I fell on the love it side is The Wanderers. This is now officially my probably my favorite movie about like period piece gang movie. Okay. All right. And did you get to watch this one? I did. Okay. Yeah. You know what's the thing about this movie? It doesn't have really a plot. No, not at all. But it feels like Richard Linklater made it. Well, sure, you know? yeah. It it's... has that sort of like 
dazed and confused feel. You're following these characters who little things are happening and their lives are moving forward at a really crucial point in their lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a slice of youth at its, uh, its twilight. And I think feel like taking it at that way, I really thoroughly enjoyed the hell out of this movie. Um, it definitely has a great soundtrack as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of uh, like really wonderful 50s and 60s music as the lead characters, the wanderers, the street gang are greasers, you know, with the pompadours and the, the jackets with the, the lapels flipped up. And, you know, they're horrible. They go around playing a game they call elbow titting. Yep. They're like, oh, oh, excuse me, ma'am, and put their elbows into girls' tits on the street. And and girls are aware of this. Yeah, and strangely, one of them like, thinks that's hot. Goes Karen Allen's like, yeah, I'm coming home with you. You're, you're hot. I like you. Now, Karen Allen from uh, uh, Raiders of Lost Ark played that's Marion. Right. Uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, um, it was it was just like uh, wacky and almost carefree. It really is. I mean, obviously, if you were going to put today's Moors, you onto cannot this make sh- this movie today. No, no. I mean, it's so incredibly inappropriate. Like for, like it doesn't go out of its way to judge these characters who for the some of the shitty stuff they do because. It's just a period of slice of life. I mean, for one right. thing, like the main one of their enemy groups, the Baldies, which is a terrible name for a gang. Yeah, like the, the lead guy, Terror, who is the same guy who played the uh, the electrical b- uh, bad guy in The Running Man. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the, yep. that guy? Yep. I forget his character's name, but you know he's huge, and his girlfriend is clearly like thirteen or fourteen years old. Right. <laughs> well, like I, I mean, the central premise is that the the, the Wanderers are going to fight the uh, the African American gang. Yeah. Uh, and it's all started because I, I guess like they're. Uh, social studies class or something. Yeah. It's like, tell me all the, the names, the, the epithets that you have for each other. Right. As to which they do. And, and, and after the, 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 uh, they completely miss the point of that lesson. <laughs> they, they decide to keep going on with the names. And then that just leads to like, okay, we got to rumble. Well, it's like, we're going to rumble, but it's like weirdly gentlemanly. They're like, okay, we're going to rumble, but there's not going to be any good knives or guns. It's just straight up fight. But then the wanderers are like, well, we don't have enough people. They got more people than we do. So we got to like talk to these other gangs and yeah, try and like, deal, deal. make a deal deal. And nobody wants to deal with them. But then because of like, there's Italian mobsters who get involved in this and <laughs> well, who are friends with the black guys, older black guys who run the gang on their side of the street are like this when you're not gonna rumble it's gonna be a football game instead yeah because we got to make some 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 action yeah they're like they want to make money off of it right and all this ultimately in the background there's a whole nother gang in the background called the ducky boys the Mm -hmm. only gang name worse than the baldies Baldies, who are actually based on a real gang called the ducky boys and And who were legitimately frightening apparently so (laughs) who are like what you mean it's like suddenly they went into the warriors movie yeah whenever they're around (laughs) you're like wait a minute what the fuck is going on here like is it all or streets of fire or something you're like what's happening what don't go into that part of town and it weirdly turns into a whole sort of like colors and race don't matter when we know we all hate the ducky boys yes absolutely (laughs) like i love the martial arts gang in here oh the wongs yeah the wongs they're just like (laughs) okay they're just like mysteriously floating around the outside watching everything because they all know aikido yeah uh, I don't. Know. I had a lot of fun with this myself. There's a lot of familiar young actors that nobody but Karen Allen really went on to anything significantly bigger. But if you watch a lot of films in this period or in the ten years after, um, you'll be like, "Oh, I recognize that person." And this came out in 1979. It's one of those movies that did okay when it came out, but it's over the years that it's really gained a big cult following mm-hmm. for being, I think, as good as it is. Yeah, yeah. No, it's charming. 
Yeah, it's it's thoroughly charming. And uh, if you do like like if you like movies like The Wanderers or Streets of Fire or something, this is one I think you're probably going to like as well. Uh, lots of good ex- extras on this thing, including a commentary by the director, Philip Kaufman. Um, uh, a intro text-based rundown of the production exhibition history, which is an odd choice. A 35-minute Back to the Bronx conversation with Richard Price, the the writer who takes the camera crew around to various locations from his early years that inspired the, the places they filmed The Wanderers from. A 2016 reunion at the Film Forum uh, featuring a lot, uh, three of the actors, including Karen Allen in here. Uh, it also has two versions of this up on here. There's a preview cut Ooh. as well, which is slightly different. I watched the theatrical cut. I did not watch the preview. I did not cut. watch the preview. But yeah, I, I really like this. I, I didn't know how I'd feel about it. And I think The Wanderers is super fun. Uh, moving on to indie type stuff here. There's Youth in Oregon. I don't really have a lot to say about this movie. This is a new release with Frank Langella playing an old crabby guy. Who, who, I mean, <laughs> that's what's going on. Who is decided that he is going to go to Oregon one way or the other. He's going to take a, a pyre guy to drive him out there so he can uh, choose to have his life ended there. Yes. You can legally do that there. But his family, his, his daughter, played by Christina Applegate, is like, this is horrible. This can't happen. He's like, I don't care what you say. It's happening. So deal with it. She talks her husband, played by Billy Crudup, okay, you need to drive him out there and convince him to come back. And he's like, no problem. She'll take a day at most before he gets tired and realizes this sucks. Uh, and his wife, who seems like completely non she, – she's just totally not affected by any of this. No, is, she can't be. Yeah, is in the car. She's like, he's <laughs> never going to do it. They don't know what he knows, which we know as an audience, is that he does indeed have an inoperable uh, finger. Yeah. Or a thing that is operable, but it'll at best give him another six months and then he's going to die horribly anyway. Yeah. Which he doesn't want to do. Which makes it even weirder, the end of this movie, when they get out there and and his reason for going out there is not actually what you think it is. Right. And then you're like, but what was the whole point then of knowing that other thing about him? You could have just told us, guy. I don't know. I mean, this is supposed when it's supposed to be funny. It's just awkward and uncomfortable. I mean, I love Frank Langell. I think he's a great actor, but I think he's misused here. Well, so uh, it, it seems to be a trend which I don't hate. I actually quite appreciate that. Uh, <coughs> shall, shall we say the these winter indie movies are, are starting to come out more, and they're they're more common dealing with late late stage life issues. Yeah. And so this is very obviously one of them. It's just not as compelling as many of the other ones that I've seen. And weirdly wants to make you think of Little Miss Sunshine. Which yeah. A lot. Down to the poster, the, the yep. art, which looks just like it. So like various <laughs> elements of the story. Like, why are you trying to connect to that movie? Yeah. Not, not quite sure. So yeah, it, it did. It rang a little hollow. Yeah. I, I, it's okay. It's one of those, I would watch another movie by this director writer, but this is never going to be looked at as one of the, their shot across the bow for no, being here. No, it's not a proclamation. However, I was a really, and I know people are very mixed about this, but I was a huge fan of Mike Mills's 20th century woman. Mike Mills is one of those really interesting new writer directors who's really just kind of recently made himself known with great films like beginners and Thumbsucker. This is, is definitely the film he's gotten the most amount of attention so far being nominated for best picture. Um, 
It's an odd story, to mm-hmm. say the least. 1979, Santa Barbara, California. It is a boarding house that's being run by Annette Benning, And it's, even though she's only kind of this tertiary main character, the main character is a young man, her son named Jamie, played by Lucas Jade Zuman, a relative newcomer. But Annette Benning, she's divorced. She's running this house where she rents out rooms to Abby, played by Greta Gerwig, who's a photographer and being treated for cervical cancer. And then William, played by Billy Crudup, who is a carpenter and a mechanic and, you know, an old, an older hippie who's has all the hippie stuff but doesn't want to be part of the, 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 the yeah, scene. Because they're gross and stink. <laughs> Probably. And then uh, Jamie's best friend is Julie, played by Ellie Fanning, who's there so much she might as well just live there. But she's playing the ultimate game of of like trying to drive a young man with burgeoning hormones completely insane. <laughs> yes. uh, like she's like like yes, I know you you like me and you want to fuck me and I'm gonna take my clothes off in front of you and sleep next to you in your bed in my just my panties. But we should just be friends. I just really like the friend aspect. Yeah, I like look, it's okay to just be friends with a man and woman. But not if you know the guy is really into you and you're just rubbing yourself off. I was going to say, yeah, about, rubbing up uh, on his on, on his weenus like, while you're trying to sleep. Jesus Christ. I was like, you're going to kill this kid. <laughs> uh, the main problem is Dorothea, um, uh, Annette Benning's character, she's really worried about not being able to connect with her son. Who's definitely – she's becoming aware of this generation gap. And the problem is that, like, even though there's a man in the house, Billy Crudup, he's just so nothing like the son. They have nothing in common. Yeah. She decides that instead she's going to get Ellie Fanning and uh, Greta Gerwig's character, who both do have a lot in common with him, to, to sort of team up and help be the masculine influence in his life, whatever <laughs> that's worth. And it involves a lot of scenes of them just sort of checking up, checking out the culture of California in 1979, of both hippie and then some cool stuff with punk culture, I thought, which was just really taking off at that point. My, problem, my problem with this movie was I'm pretty <laughs> sure I've seen it before. Yeah. Not, not obviously this exact movie, but but a lot of the themes that they were kind of exploring, even down to uh, Annette Benning being old mom. Yeah. There's yeah. A, there is a lot of familiarity with other films. I just felt this did it better than a lot of those other films. Oh, it was I've perfectly seen. fine. It was, I mean, it's charming. Uh, I I like the turns it goes along the way where at first you think they're going to make Annette Benning's character like like can do no wrong. And along the way, she really, everybody really realizes how flawed they are and how they're kind of like (laughs) putting their expectations on other people and how they should be. There's a lot of interesting things like that. And there's a lot of interesting visual stuff that I'm still not a hundred percent on. There's Mm -hmm. some like ideas like, let's make everything look trippy and psychedelic. I was like, but why? Because it's it's 1979. But I I don't know. I really enjoyed this. I thought that was really funny. Uh, Alia Shawkat is in this as well for a little while. Uh, it was actually one of my favorite movies of last year, although I totally never thought it was going to win Best Picture. <laughs> there was like no, no, <laughs> no chance. It, it couldn't have. It couldn't. There was no chance. But it's another strong film from Mike Mills, who is one of those directors who's quickly becoming one of the most interesting people to watch right now for indie uh, art. Not, not arty, really, but indie films. Um, not a lot of extras here. Commentary with the director. There's a nine-minute making of EPK. But, you know, what were you going to do? They're not going <laughs> to talk to the special effects guys, so... <laughs> Now, I'm curious to know what you think about this next one, because there are some critics who think this is the greatest film Martin Scorsese has ever made. Jesus. And then there's me, who completely, wildly disagrees with that on every Yeah, I, I, I thought it was actually uh, uh, dead on arrival. <laughs> yeah. I'm, and when we gave our review, we were all on the same page about silence, that we just didn't care for it that much. And nope. it was going into it, going, it's the new Scorsese, even at his weakest, he's got a lot to offer. Which isn't to dismiss what's good about this film, but 
man, this thing has felt like a complete mess to me. It was awful. I mean, like I, I had kind of forgotten that it was it was a Scorsese film, and watching this, I was like, man, whoever is is this is this like a, a Passion of the Christ? Is this like a, a Christian movie? Like, as in, like, made by, you know, pro-Christian propaganda people? And no, not really. I mean, he's a Catholic, right? You, but, but it's not propaganda. I wouldn't say that at all. It's definitely exploring the notion of faith versus all evidence to the contrary. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know? I, I think one of the things that, that was interesting was was kind of how... Uh, okay, so it's, it's basically about uh, <laughs> Portuguese friars in Japan kind of... Shit goes down, and so the friars back home are like, "Well, so what's up with them? Let's go check on them." Yeah, and so so uh, Kylo Ren and uh, Skinny Guy, <laughs> Kylo Ren and Skinny Guy, is that Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver? Yes, yeah. those, those are the two. Uh, just kind of like uh, have a little wacky adventure to go check out what's up with with uh, Father Ferreira, yeah, played by Liam Neeson, pa- played by Qui Gon Jinn, and um, <laughs> oh my god, this is the Star Wars movie! I didn't it really realize. Is. Uh, and, and so. It's it's kind of seeing what it's like to to have a Christian faith when when you will be killed if you are a Christian. Yeah, in Japan at that point, they were just flat out executing you. And in Liam Neeson's case, they were executing anyone who he had converted in front of him. Yeah, which you know? is kind of a mindfuck. And the question being, as they're going out there, is he going to be like as the reports say? Has he like gone native? Yeah, is he or, apostatized, or, or is he? Like, just waiting his chance to get away and needs their help. I mean, ultimately, this is not about Liam Neeson's crisis of faith. It's about Andrew Garfield's crisis of Mm -hmm. faith. And I think that's what I I just – and this is from coming from someone, admittedly, who does not share said faith. It's never really even understood it. Mm Mm-hmm. I didn't feel anything for him. I mean, no. at this point, he's letting uh-uh. people get killed, and you're like, dude, seriously, let it go. Like, <laughs> I'm like, your faith is not more important than those people's lives. Right. There's there's one character, uh, uh, the, the guy who kind of guides them from a cow back to Japan, who is kind of like the prodigal coward who will sell anybody out at a moment's notice yeah. to, like, keep his bacon. Yeah. Uh, and I, we're not quite sure if you're like, well, pra- you know, pragmatically speaking, this is what you needed to do. Or like, oh, man, you the cock crowed three times tonight. You know, like, it's just, it's real weird in the way it handles everything. I agreed. I mean, the one thing I'll say, I think the cinematography is jaw-dropping for mm-hmm. this thing. Like, yeah. like you would fully expect That's it to better be. be. Well, that's the one thing, though. That's the one thing I came out with. Like, Rodrigo Prieto's uh, cinematography is just so gorgeous. This is like like listening to one of Brian Eno's ambient records. You could put it on in the background, just look at it, and it's, and it's going to make you feel relaxed and pretty. One of the things that really bothered me was uh, through, throughout, uh, a few times throughout, a uh, uh, skinny guy uh, is looking at something, and then, you know, uh, like uh, a depiction of Jesus will appear somewhere, and then the depiction might as well be winking at him. Yeah. Just like, huh? Yeah, there's a weird thing later on in the film where you're like, is, are you, is this supposed to be Jesus talking to him? Right. Yeah. Uh, or is it just him going crazy or, you know, and how is that relevant to me in terms of considering this man's faith? I don't know. And like, you know, I don't, as I've been told by multiple people, if you don't have faith, this is not the movie for you. No, no, maybe BS. that's, but maybe it is true because I don't share that even a tiny bit. And to people I know who, a lot of you I know his opinions I really respect who do are strongly people of faith. This film meant a lot to them, like really meant a lot to them. 
I still don't understand, and maybe I never will. But but for me, I I found this like almost a complete mess. Um, I, I, I did too because because it crosses its own message. Like, yeah. One, it doesn't actually ever convey a message. Two, it's 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 shooting so many out there, but it's not really fortifying any one viewpoint enough for you to walk away with. That's what they were trying to say. I guess so. I, like I said, I still came out at the end like I don't even have any idea what they ultimately <laughs> wanted to say. There's only one bonus feature on here, strangely, which is Martin Scorsese's journey into silence. Twenty four minute. Uh, background piece uh, about him, Scorsese, looking at the source book, his direction and passion for the project, uh, the history of the film, Japan at the time it took place. You know, it's it's a better than EPK because directed by Scorsese, I guess, mm-hmm. piece. But, I mean, he was super passionate about this. He was trying to get this film off the ground for something like 17 years. Oh, it had my boy Tadanobu Sano in it. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, when he, he was the interrogator. The interpreter? Yeah, he was the Christopher, Christoph Waltz of this film. No, no, he, he was, was the interpreter. Oh, okay. The, yeah, the interrogator was the, what are you doing? Yeah, he, the interrogator guy is my favorite part of the whole movie. <laughs> he's, like, so funny. He's, like, I know he's not supposed to be funny, but for me, he was He, he was Peter Sellers. <laughs> yeah, he was totally, really making He had this weird voice. Yeah, I, I laughed. All right, so... um our one TV show of the week, and is also currently our giveaway our con- for, for subscribers right now on the site. If you go to the front page, there's a contest where you can win this, is the Blu-ray uh, of Silicon Valley Season 3. Man, I really enjoy this show. For a show, I started off being very sort of like, it's funny, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's really grown on me uh, over time. And by Season 3, I'm pretty much can't wait for every new season of the show. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty fantastic uh, being kind of uh, tangentially in the tech world and seeing all the power plays that they do. It's like, yep, yep, I've seen that. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. It's This whole show is... I, I've said this before. It's kind of like Entourage with that whole Vince gets the movie, Vince doesn't get the movie, Vince gets the movie, Vince doesn't get the movie, except with them trying to get this this software off the ground. Right, and and uh, honestly, <coughs> when, when when Silicon Valley started, I was very uh, upset by that that little aspect until I started seeing how it works behind the screen. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I know it, it, it is actually a, exactly a jerk like fest like this. Yeah, and they're hyper exaggerated versions of people you meet in Silicon Valley or people who work in this sort of industry. And there's so many good performances in this thing from Thomas Middleditch playing the lead character who came up with the idea for this super compression app to Kumail Nanjani, who is on the verge of a massive career break. Um, His new movie, the big sick that played at South by was Mm -hmm. like widely agreed upon one of the best movies to play there this year. Just really great. Um, uh, what's the name of the uh, goofy guy? This guy, T.J. Miller. Yeah, T.J. Miller, who I've never really particularly liked in anything but the show, <laughs> but he's playing the same character he always does, a sort yeah. of obnoxious blowhard. Uh, this is a great cast that has really found their feet by this season, and I mean, if you watch the last season. So, spoiler, if you have not, uh, he's basically Thomas Middleditch's character has been forced out of being the lead running guy of this thing for Pied Piper and is being put as chief technology officer, which doesn't really seem to mean anything. And they've hired a new guy. Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen Tobolowski, who at first they're like, oh, he's like a, a, a tech whisperer. But then his ideas are fucking terrible. 
Yeah, like most CEOs. <laughs> yeah, he is, clearly has no idea what's actually going on. Well, that's, what, I mean, that's actually a good point because a, a CTO is actually usually way more important to the success of a product than, than a CEO. And yet he's like, this guy has got this whole sort of like, I'm this guru attitude that nothing he can say is going to be wrong. You know, <laughs> at best, he's great at figuring out when people are trying to undercut him. Yeah. And undercut them first. And then there's a lot a lot about their the the company Huli that's constantly been the major nemesis the whole way with them and how they are once again trying to figure out a way to fuck this product out from under them. And, and tripping funny. under their own feet, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I still think this show is one of the best, funniest shows on television right now. Uh, it's just deleted scenes for bonus features, but hey, that's good, right? Yeah, it does. Highly recommend it. Our last Blu-ray this week is, of course, one of the most anticipated Blu-rays by half the Star Wars fans out there. The other half... Star Trek Force Awakened. Five undiscovered. Definitely country? not. Okay. Although I could tell you some funny stories about that. I was just reading a book <laughs> about right. the making of it. It's pretty funny. Uh, and that is Rogue One. Star Wars, a Star Wars story, Rogue One. The first of the a Star Wars story films, which is to say movies that are in Star Wars universe but don't take place in the episode number continuity. Yeah, kind of the, the way they explained it in the bonus features, which I did watch on this. It's it's not so uh, hand jobby to the Skywalker family. No, it's and this is kind of episode three point seven or something, you yeah. know, <laughs> uh, maybe maybe like three point nine because clearly the end of this film, the beginning of A New Hope, takes place maybe as much as hours after the end of this yes, film. Yes, it does. Uh, the idea being, and I can't believe anyone out there doesn't even know this by now, uh, Godzilla director Gareth Edwards stepped in here to direct this thing where they need someone to go in and steal the Death Star plans, as we all know happened at some point behind the scenes, uh, as discussed in A New Hope. And this is the story of those doomed people <laughs> uh, with Felicity Jones playing Jin Erso, who's kind of the lead of these people, whose father played by Mads Mikkelsen, was taken away from her when she was very young to be forced at gun at phaser point yeah, he had to, to be, work for the Empire. To yeah, he had to be this. too charming elsewhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and um, so she's basically going along so she can rescue her dad from the Empire. Yeah. She doesn't really care about the Rebels' mission until suddenly in the plot when it decides she does. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much so. <laughs> um but there's, she's got a team of Diego Luna, uh, Donnie Yen, oh, Alan Tudyk as a, a robot that, like an imperial robot that has been reprogrammed. That's mm -hmm. one of the, the better parts of the film, I thought. Yeah, he's 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 the the light and laughter of the the thing. Uh, Jiang Wen, Riz Ahmed to a lesser extent, Forrest Whitaker to a lesser extent. Weirdly, the Forrest Whitaker run on this is so like. He's, he's presented this great guru of being, like, this sort of terrorist rebel. And then, like, it kind of writes him out of the story at the most sort of, like, okay, sure, why not? Yeah, the most ridiculous one. <laughs> like, that's how he's going out. Uh, I don't know why, but fuck it. He, he, went, <laughs> he went, I mean, Yoda's was going out felt more decisive than this one. Like, you know, like, oh, that's a good reason. So before we get too into it, I gotta know. I gotta know. Okay. So Mon Mothma says, many Bothans died getting these plans. That's Return of the Jedi. Oh, Okay, never mind. Yep. And that, that solves that. I made the same mistake, and people called me on it. I was okay. like, ah. Well, see, I genuinely wanted to know. Nobody's ever seen the deleted sequence after that where she goes, but to be fair, bothans are famously really fucking incompetent. So. <laughs> They're basically <laughs> giant targets. Yeah, I mean, you you pretty much just throw them enough of a bit at shit till whatever <laughs> needs to get done gets done. It's just kind of what all they're good for, really. 
I mean, I I did on the whole really like this. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm of the side that liked The Force Awakens a lot more than this, but not because it's part of the primary story. Mm-hmm. I just felt more emotion for it. You know, mm-hmm. knowing that the ending was a preconceived thing for this one was kind of had less impact. For yeah, me. that's true. Um, I don't know. It had Donnie in, and that was that was awesome. And he's great in it, playing basically uh, the blind swordsman. You yep. know. Um, uh, you know, he's a force user who is not a force user. He's, force he's a force touched. believer, but he doesn't really have direct – he's not a Jedi. Right. Uh, he and his relationship with Jiang Yan, who's kind of his gunman guy, is great. Uh, and like I said, uh, Alan Tudyk, I think, is pretty good, although 50-50 with the jokes. Yeah, and that's not exactly his fault. Like, well, <laughs> he actually, had a script. I just listened to an interview with him where they said he um, mo- most of the jokes were stuff he came up with on the spot. Oh, well, then maybe you should get some writers. There. There you go. <laughs> Uh, overall I really like this I think the strongest thing are the action scenes are among the best we've ever seen in a Star Wars film Mm -hmm. there's a sequence with a ship that its whole purpose is to ram other ships that is badass as fuck oh the Corvette Uh, yeah I was like that's fucking cool (laughs) (laughs) there's I mean just a lot of the ground warfare shit is really cool and this thing is positively filled with action sequences but there are definitely almost as many points where I was like well, that didn't really make that much sense in terms of the way characters behave, especially uh, yeah. the, the late Felicity Jones's character. Yeah. Well, and and uh, uh, Luna's character was just too much like, mm, I get it. You got tough calls to make, but you're still a bag of dicks. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think this is a mixed bag, but definitely more on the positive side, just in terms of being a Star Wars movie and being f- just pure fun as mm. a Star Wars movie. Like almost every Star Wars movie, if you stare at it too long and think about it too much, the problems start to become a lot more prominent (laughs) and now we're of that culture where we do that to everything that comes out yep (laughs) (laughs) no we we got that fine tooth comb no but i would love to see uh donnie yen and i forget the other guy's name but the the guard the the kaiba crystal guardians have their own like uh road trip movie like, right? It would be so awesome. I mean, I can only assume. I, I know that Force Whitaker's character, Saw Gerrera, appears in Rebels. Yes. A, a younger version of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's not outside of the question, although apparently they've announced they're wrapping Rebels up, but I'm assuming they're going to do another show after that because uh, that's been a big success for them, that we might see their characters, Donnie Yen's character and Zhang Wen's character, That'd be showing really up and awesome. somewhere else in continuity because they're very cool. Yes. Yeah. It's like someone said on Facebook, man, just finished Rogue One. When's Rogue Two coming out? (laughs) I have some bad news for you, my friend. But you're a big Star Wars fan. Of course you are. Uh, There is a lot of supplemental content on this thing. A whole dedicated second Blu-ray disc because they, I mean, the movie looks and sounds amazing. They maxed out a Blu-ray disc to make it look and sound as good as possible. They really did. And there's every possible detail you could probably want about Star Wars Rogue One as bonus features here. Yeah, the thing I'd say about uh, at least the the inception of Rogue One, not really any, any information that couldn't have been figured out. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was all pretty much like, well, if you're going to do it, this is how it has to happen. Yeah. So it, it, I don't know how useful it was, but right. But at the very least, uh, getting to to see the cast actually talk about what they contributed to the characters, that part I thought was really interesting. Yeah, and there's a lot of these features are very specific to the cast members of talking with them and how they they were in fact developed along the way. 
Um, how did you feel about uh, the CG characters? Awful. Yeah, I wasn't crazy about it. <laughs> it was so. It was like that one shot they do at first with Moff Tarkin, where you kind of see his reflection in the glass. I was like, that's cool. Yeah, but, but when then he, turned he turns around. around. You're like, oh, why'd you fuck that up? Well, what, <laughs> why did it have to be Moff Tarkin at all? Is sure. The question. It could have yeah. been some. There's no reason it had to be Moff Tarkin. Yeah, it could have been a completely new character. Yeah, it could have been his like uh, secretary. And know? that was one of the biggest problems of this movie overall to me was there's too much of a, a felt need to provide fan service yes. where it wasn't necessary to have fan service. The only one that I really appreciated was Buttmouth Guy and We're Wanted on 12 Systems Guy. Really? See, but, that one bugged me even more. No, I liked it because it had no impact whatsoever. Just like, hey, what do you know? You like these guys. It's those guys. Yeah, I remember <laughs> them. It's the Waller's face guy. I used to have his action figure. Yeah. Don't make him would, angry. Yeah, nobody would ever trade him for me. All right. Sorry about that, man. Uh, I, I might have an extra around here somewhere. No, I don't. Uh... <laughs> Actually, I sold all my Star Wars shit when I was, like, 15 at a yard sale for, like, the tiny bit of money it took to buy myself the Empire Strikes Back on, on for Atari 2600. Oof. Yeah. Which, it, that cartridge is worth probably 10 bucks, and all that <laughs> that stuff I had is probably worth, like, 10,000 bucks. Yep. <sighs> Live and learn, people. Don't sell your action figures. Just saying. Yeah, just keep them in a box. You don't even have to keep them in the original packaging, for yeah, God's sake. Some of those original box. figures, you're like, they're they're still worth a shit ton of money outside of the packaging. Mm-hmm. I forget. I think it's like the, the figures that have robes. If you have the, the non-plastic robes, those are worth yes. a lot of money. And then the Obi-Wan and Darth Vader that have a telescoping lightsaber oh, are worth a ton of ass. money. Yeah. And then, of course, the extremely rare Boba Fett that actually fires the thing off of his backpack. Mm-hmm. Super. Which you could only get by pre-ordering. Well, I don't, I don't have that. Yeah, I don't have that either. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this week's Breakfast Pub. Thank you so much for joining me, Joe. Uh, it's also digital noise. Oh, did I say Breakfast Pub? <laughs> Fuck. Sorry. <laughs> it's been a long weekend. Uh, and I will be joining Marco in another week and a half, two weeks for more titles. So until then, um, keep watching those uh, Blu-rays. Tell us what you really enjoyed that we turned you on to. And uh, don't forget, if you're a subscriber, and become a subscriber, please, get on to that front page and sign yourself up to possibly win Silicon Valley. I will be announcing the winner of that within a week or so. so. Yeah, do it. Do it. <laughs>